Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It's a glorious section of God's Word, because this section is the good news that salvation has come through the knowledge of the glory of God and Jesus Christ. It's, it's really what Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when he wrote, For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, that's where the glory of God is seen. In the face of Christ, in the person in Christ, in the work of Christ. History's two brightest flashes of light against the darkness were at creation and in the incarnation. That's what we learn from Paul, that at creation, God spoke the world into existence when he said, let there be light against nothing, against the dark, against the black, came everything. It started with a call for light. And then in the incarnation, when darkness was over the world, when there was no light, for the people of God. And there was no hope for the Gentile. The light came into the world as God's Son, as the Creator became part of His creation. The bright morning star, as Christ is called, dawned on a silent night, and we have a record of it in the Bible. The true record. The inerrant record. The infallible record. The authoritative record of when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, Follow with me as I read this morning this magnificent account of the birth of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for the birth, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is God's word to us. And may it be pleasing to him to enlighten the eyes of our hearts this Lord's day. In uh, this time of year, there is no shortage of Christmas cliches, let alone Christian Christmas cliches. Probably top of the list, and no offense, none taken, if you like to go around telling people Jesus is the reason for the season in case they hadn't heard, or that wise men still seek him. Maybe lesser known because it doesn't quite have as much uh, pizzazz to the cliche is the idea that, you know, 
uh, Jesus is the greatest gift ever, and then they may say something, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, his presence is our present. And it's 100% true that God dwelling with man is the greatest present that has ever been given to anyone. But that gets me thinking about gifts and lesser gifts that I have given and received over the years. I was taking some time this week to think back over Christmas's past about the best gift that I was ever given. And it was no, no shortage of good gifts. I, my memory's escaping me. I remember uh, a flannel shirt I got once that I really liked, uh, a snowboard, which at the time in the early 90s, snowboarding was on its way up as skiing was on its way out. But uh, it was a Burton performer, and it was wooden, and it had the uh, pointy end that would impale people if you ran into them as you went down the hill. So I, I understand why they did away with that. I also remember lesser gifts that I gave, a memory um, that came back to haunt me. I was a child of the public schools, and so you had a little thing called Santa's Secret Workshop. And I think my dad gave me five bucks, you know, to buy gifts for five people, seven including my parents. And if you do the math on that, um, it's some impressive stuff you're going to get at the workshop. But uh, surprised to find that they were selling, you know, 24 karat gold chains for under a dollar. And I proceeded to buy my oldest brother one. It had a basketball player on it, and he was a basketball player, and I thought, he's going to love this. And he opened it, and he pretended to love it. Um, not out of the goodness of his heart, but to crush mine, because then he put it on, and he, I think just by flexing his neck, burst it. Maybe you could sit there and think back to some great gifts you've been given. Actually, if you're looking for a good conversation starter around the table tonight or tomorrow, maybe go around and say, hey, what's, what's a gift you remember getting that was just amazing or a gift that you gave somebody that you thought was going to be awesome and maybe wasn't so awesome? To help you jog your memory, um, I did my research this week, as I often do on the Internet, and found the 100 greatest gifts or greatest toys, I should say. 100 greatest toys of all time. So sit back. I'm going to read them all. Just kidding. Uh, but they did rank it by the decades, starting for whatever reason in 1923. So if you're 100 years old here, could be that guy, uh, your top toy in the 20s was a yo-yo or the radio flyer wagon. And some of you are like, okay, I, I remember seeing those around. If you were a child of the 30s or 40s, it was the Red Rider BB gun or a Viewmaster. And I just heard it every... Viewmaster. In fact, we have one in our home. I don't know what time period it belongs to, but um, uh, there is a person in my house who might be from around that era currently, and he saw it. My kid was, I think one of them was just laying around the house, and it was an original. I mean, not, maybe not from the 30s, 40s, but it had some dinosaurs, and uh, you, know, you pick it up and look through it, and you see the, the T-Rex eating the triceratops or something like that. Um, but I guess what was interesting to me was he found that and was talking to my kids about it while my one son is sitting there watching uh, the, the game yesterday. There was a football game on. And I was just thinking of, I mean, what happens, what changes? You know, high-def entertainment in the 30s, 40s was a Viewmaster. That was it. And now we have 70-inch screens and high-def humans and all that good stuff. Times change. Maybe the entertainment doesn't do too, too much. Now in the 50s, 
The goat, not like a goat gift, but the goat wasn't the greatest gift in the 50s, uh, unless you were raised on a farm. Uh, the goat of all toys came along in the 50s. Any guesses? Legos. Why do I call it the goat? Uh, for money generated. It's still the all-time uh, money maker. Uh, pulls in roughly 10 to $15 billion a year. And that's with all the other Legos still hanging around. I mean, people are passing those things along. And so with a market on Legos to still rake in that much money, you have to give it credit as being the goat. But you also have to sit there and say, all because somebody just made plastic blocks. That's crazy. Uh, the 60s gave us Etch-A-Sketch, which um, has produced maybe some architects. For me, I can't draw a straight line on it. And we also got the Easy Bake Oven, which just helped us to get fat at an earlier age. Uh, the 70s gave us NERF, which I didn't know until researching this, is an acronym for Non-Expanding Recreational Foam. So if you remember anything today, Non-Expanding Recreational Foam. I, not phone, foam. 80s was the rise of action figures, of course, because of television and movies, so G.I. Joe's, He-Man, you name it, they made a figure for it. And the 90s maybe peaked with Tickle Me Elmo, though most of us probably were scared of it as a young child. And then there's been nothing good made under the sun since the 90s, in all realms, not just toys, music, cinema, TV. It, life peaked in the 90s, and it's been downhill since then. Thank you. I, that's all to say I was thinking about a particular toy that's made a comeback. I, it's in my own home, and I saw it yesterday while last-minute shopping, the Light Bright. And I was thinking about at the Light Bright in relation to today's message in how something very ordinary goes into the extraordinary just at the flick of a switch. I was walking by my daughter using it and paid it little attention because it was just a black piece of paper and some pieces of plastic multicolored poked into said paper. And I'm like, meh. And then the lights go on and it's Mona Lisa. It's amazing. I stopped and called the children in to behold the wonderful creation of Light Bright. And it really is this idea that Luke has set up here in this section. You have something in the first half, verses 1 to 8, that's completely ordinary. A black backdrop of, you know, a Caesar, a census, a city, some citizens, some shepherds and sheep. Very ordinary. Yes, he's giving us details because Luke likes to do that. But there's nothing extraordinary in those first eight verses at all. It's just history. It's just names and places. But then the light goes on in verse 9. All of a sudden, an angel of the Lord shows up in the glory of the Lord, and thousands of angels come crashing down from heaven, singing the hallelujah chorus, and the high point of it all is the greatest message ever given, salvation has come to man, the gospel. Just like that, just at the, the, the flip of a switch, the ordinary becomes extraordinary in history. And that's what we're going to see today, that salvation from God in Jesus Christ has come in the knowledge of the glory of God and the person and work of Christ. So first, let's check out the ordinary. Those first eight verses, there's all kind of details Luke wants to give us. The first detail in the first verse, a despot, despot's decree from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. 
Caesar was the most famous man in those ancient days. His name was Gaius Octavius. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, appointed personally by Caesar at his death to become the next most powerful man in the world at the time. He was given the name Caesar Augustus, which stands for elevated king or exalted prince by the Roman Senate because this man saw himself as deity. And he was worshipped as such. The 45 years he was in charge, the, the Roman Empire expanded unlike it had ever done before. The first century Roman historian Tacitus even records, he saw himself as a god, as did others, so much so that after his death, a coin was minted in his honor with his picture on it and the inscription, Savior of the world. So that's Caesar. And he has a decree that goes out, and historians know this. It was around uh, 8 BC to uh, have a census taken of, what does it say, all the inhabited earth. Now, that's uh, code for the uh, inhabited earth, the known world, to Caesar, as in the Roman Empire. But what he was wanting to do with the census of his known empire was to conquer all the inhabited earth. He wanted that to continue to expand. And how do powerful men keep powerful empires expanding? Powerful militaries. How do you build powerful militaries? Money. And how do you get that money? You count all the heads in your empire and make them pay up. Uh, So that's the details that we find here. None of it you would probably call out of the ordinary behavior for a powerful, shrewd, you know, had his own shortcomings, but um, one of the greatest rulers men have known in the Roman Empire, if by great you mean conquering. It's just ordinary move on the chessboard of the world by the king. But you know, when you move the king on the chessboard, everybody else has to make the counter moves. Everybody responds in, in, in reaction to it. And that's the next details you get. This king move sets off a series of events to move some pawns, if you want to call them that. And that's where we see some, some details in the uh, dates. The dates of what? The first sentence, while this man named Quirinius, which I have to practice to say every year. So from this point on, I'm going to call him Q. Q was governor of Syria. And that's a fact. Here's the problem. Scholars say, but, you know, Q was this governor at the time of, you know, uh, 9 to 8 BC, and then he was moved around by Rome to some other regions, and he, so he helped start this census, and then he came back as governor again in Syria, not until AD 6. So there's this 14-year gap, and Christ is born, historians say, around 4 BC. So is this now fiction? Do we throw our Bibles out the window? Well, it helps to use some reason to say, um, how's a census work in uh, 8 BC? Immediate results, whether the decree goes out and automatically, you know, within a year, everybody knows it. I mean, just think of a census in our day. How long does it take for us to get the results? I guess the latest one in 2020. At least takes a year or two to get the results, let alone the people to go around and give that census. Even I was reading in the Charlotte Observer this week that uh, a 2022 census, we just get the report, I think it was last week, you know, yay, North Carolina, we're the fifth fastest growing state. Some of you feel threatened by that. I think it's the locals. Us transplants were like, this is awesome. More of our kind from all around the planet. 
Uh, in fact, the fifth fastest growing, 139,526 people came to the state in 2022. I think we have about 526 of them. So welcome, you new people to North Carolina. We're happy to have you. But there's at least a, a year-long delay in that one. The first U.S. census from the time it was part of the constitutional law in 1788 until George Washington signed it into action in 1789 until August 2nd of 1790 when people finally went out and started doing it and it took to the end of the year. And then two years later, 1792, they had the results. Do the math on that one. Four years for them to get from the beginning of the idea to the finish of it. And that's in the 1790s. We're talking the... BCs. So maybe the skeptics can see that um, a census is decreed by Caesar in the vast Roman Empire of that time that makes its way down to itty bitty Bethlehem. Could take a few years, you think? You add to that what's known about the Jews who were resistant to what? Rome's taxation and oversight, and it could have taken a while for them to want to go along with this, knowing that at the end of the day, all it meant was they're giving more money to Caesar. The details. But all that extra biblical stuff is really to make this point that one particular pawn needed to be moved on the map, and that is who we meet in the detail of verse 4, Joseph. Because each person, verse 3 says, had to go to their own city. So Joseph goes up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Because why? He was of the house and family of David. That was his hometown. And he had to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. The details now from decrees of Caesar to dates of time to the town of David. Bethlehem was the hometown of David. We know that from the Old Testament. It was the hometown of Joseph from what we know here. And this is important because Israel's Messiah had to be of what? Davidic pedigree. So the pieces that are moving on this chessboard are doing what? They're getting everybody into the places they need to be. Well, who said they needed to be in these places and when? Turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. 700 years before all of this is happening, Micah the prophet prophesies that in that little town of Bethlehem, verse 2, too little to be counted among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, one will go forth. Now, mind you, this is 700 years before Jesus is born, but it's 300 years after David was king from that same little town of Bethlehem. So from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now here's where the ordinary becomes extraordinary in Micah 5. His goings forth are from long ago. You mean like David long ago? No, from the days of eternity. That really narrows the field, doesn't it? This, this Messiah that's going to come is an eternally existing Messiah from David's line, born in David's town. He's a ruler who's been alive forever. Therefore, he'll give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. That's quite a prophecy. And it's going to come out of this insignificant 
couple thousand person town. But the details go back to the decree and go back to the dates and go back to the town of David that get Jesus there. Now some would say, that's miraculous. Well, do you want to be um, true to a definition of the miracle, of a miracle, which is that the natural laws of the world have to be bent, right? Something supernatural has to occur amongst the natural. That's a miracle. Parting of the Red Sea. Why? Red Seas don't part. Water doesn't just move on its own. But see, in, in the ordinary of these first six verses, I don't see anything miraculous. But what I do see something equally impressive is called God's providence. That even with the most powerful man on the planet, God can put an idea in his head that in the perfect timing of God is going to put a person exactly where he wants them according to his perfect will. And if there's anything we know about God's providence, it's that the details of every moment of history always are accomplishing one will and one will alone, God's. Everyone else might think, hey, I, I see things happening in my life and details. Well, sure. But just know there's a sovereign will. There's, there's God's will moving all things to the praise of the glory of His grace. And that's what's happening with every move of every person of all time. God's providence. He has the power to orchestrate the unbelievable. This would seem unbelievable, but He has the power to do it through normal means. Because though the pieces on the chessboard are being moved and it seems that was shrewd, that was good, that was wise, the great creator of the board itself and all the pieces on it, he's doing whatever he pleases in the heavens. So we see providence, details that we don't want to let escape our attention down to a final detail, now more coming close to home of Christ himself. All that this had to do to get Joseph and Mary there with child then we move into the details and the delivery. We've seen the decree and the dates in the town of David. Verses 6 to 8, we see details in the delivery. While they were there, the days were completed for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. A reminder, she was a virgin. This is a virgin birth conceived by the Holy Spirit, her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and that was common to do then. And she laid him in a manger. And because there was no room for them in the inn, and we have to get out the picture of our mind of whatever musical you saw as a child in whatever church you were at, where there was this mean old innkeeper who was trying to uh, really turn the screws on Joseph for showing up late, unprepared to, the, to there with no reservations. I don't think verse 6 sets it up like that. While they were there, the days were completed. As in, he already had made the move to get there, right? Um, I know there's husbands sometimes who are unprepared for the arrival of their first child and they don't have the bags packed and they haven't timed it out perfectly. Sometimes you can't do that stuff. Um, but I don't think that's Joseph here. They were where they needed to be, wherever they were staying, but when the time for her to give birth is happening, now she has to do it in a manger, which um, if you flip over to Luke 22, it's the same word used in Luke 22:11 which isn't a manger scene with a bunch of uh, animals and, and hay and straw. Luke 22, verse 11, when Jesus is uh, telling his disciples to prepare the Passover feast, he tells them to go ahead in verse 11. And he says to them, you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room? That's guest room is the same exact word for in. 
And all I do pointing this out is, um, you know, to give maybe a little more accurate picture of what it would have looked like in those hills of Bethlehem that, you know, I'm sure Joseph and Mary uh, had a house they were staying in, and that house could have been an inn. I would imagine when there was a great influx of people in a small town like that, there weren't holiday inns, hotels all around, but somebody with a few extra bedrooms might open it up and say, hey, uh, you're here for whatever time of year this thing is, and everybody's coming here because now they finally have to register for the census. Quarters probably got tight. And it was common for people in their homes to have a separate place right out cut into the hillside, and they found these in excavating that area, caves that were kind of dug into the hillside, and, and parts of those caves hollowed out in the wall for the animals that were outside at night when they needed someplace warm to sleep, those animals to come in and put their little faces and eat the hay out of that little carved place in the wall. So that's probably what the scene looks like here. And I'm not saying it's great accommodations. Don't get me wrong, ladies and babies. Don't mean to offend you. But it may not be the exact picture that we have drawn of it. All that to say the details in the delivery have Christ coming meek and lowly and humble from the start. When these shepherds are going to be told to go and see him, they're not going to find him, you know, in the four seasons. They're going to find him in this lowly place. And I think it's just a, a picture physically of the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, that when, when Christ came down, he came down by choice, and he came down with an attitude of humility. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Right from the start. Right from the start shows up in this manger. But all of this still is rather ordinary. It's the light bright before the switch has been flipped. It's just details that you and I would, would pass over and not think much of, but then in verse 9, suddenly salvation from God in Christ is extraordinary. The lights come on. How? Verse 9, an extraordinary messenger, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Now that's an extraordinary messenger. Angel appearances, theophanies in the Bible, they do just come out of nowhere. Unannounced, just like Gabriel did to Zacharias in chapter 1 and Mary in chapter 1. They're boom, right there in front of them. And sometimes people in the Bible don't get it right away. Like Mary, when she got to the tomb and there were two angels sitting there, but she seemed to be unfazed by that until she turned around and saw the Lord. Or Abraham greeting three men in, in Genesis 18. When, when there's no shining glory around them, they can be mistaken for men. Uh, maybe that's what these shepherds initially saw. I mean, they're standing out there in the dark and they, they see suddenly someone around them. But what's happened next is the, uh, the shocking part. Then the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. The glory of the Lord would make sure now they wouldn't mistake this angel for any mere man as the luminescence of Yahweh lights up the area all around them. Brilliant light and the glory of God are often intertwined in our Bibles. It's the part... Light is part of the nature of God's being, 1 John 1. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. 
It's part of the presence of God's being. 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light. It's part of the purity of God's being. Exodus 33.20, when Moses wants to see the glory of God, his response is, no man can see me and live. To be in the radiant majesty of God lays waste to anyone, particularly the prideful facade of our own perceived glory. And that's what's happening to these men in this moment. They're terribly frightened. Uh, that's beyond just a mere physical reaction. You know, you could be in, in the um, luminescence of some, um, some great display of lights. Once, I don't know, 15 years ago, I had to go get my eyes checked around this time of year up in Pittsburgh and it had snowed and so there's white outside and it's 3 p.m. The sun is shining bright and they had to dilate my eyes and so uh, they're like, hey, wear these sunglasses on the way home. I'm like, no, those things, those blue blockers, my, my grandparents wear those. Not a chance. Someone might see me. I'll take my chances on squinting and it was a terrible experience painful, water gushing from my eyes, squinting as hard as I could, one eye at a time, just trying to make my way home. That's the closest thing I could think to what this brightness would have been like. Blinding light, but terrifying to these shepherds. So they need the common message. We see the beginning of it in 10 to 12, the common message of, hey, don't be afraid. An extraordinary messenger now has to give them an extraordinary message. The first thing he has to say is, don't be afraid. And we know angels greet people with that all the time when they're fearful. Jesus, even to his own disciples in wonderful moments of miraculous work, would tell them, don't be afraid, it's me. What's the reason for them not to be afraid? It's the good news. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is at the heart of the extraordinary message. The extraordinary message isn't just uh, there's uh, good news of great joy and don't be afraid. That's all the trappings around it. If it's really good news, it should produce a great joy in me when I hear it. And here's the heart of the great joy. A Savior who is Christ the Lord has just been born. The message of salvation from God on high, it's come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And really, it's important for us to slow down right here and get these three descriptions of Jesus right. I mean, this is what our hearts have been looking forward to all month. When we look to Christ in Scripture, when we look at the name above every name, three titles, three descriptions of Jesus pop out and they're right here. Above all the other descriptions at the heart of what he came to do because of who he is, is Savior, Christ, and Lord. So let's think upon those for a few moments. First, the title Savior. What's his title? Because it's what his name means, Jesus. The Old Testament name, Joshua. God saves. God is salvation. So that's his name. That's what he's about. And that title describes his mission. His identity is going to determine his activity. First and foremost, he has come to save people. Yet you can look back through your Old Testament and see a lot of people came to save. God used a lot of people to save people. Noah was used to save his own family from destruction in the flood. Moses was used to save his people from slavery in Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh. 
And of course, David was used to save his people from the enemies of Israel, whether it was the mighty Goliath or the sinister Saul. Is that the kind of Savior we're talking about? No, this Savior eclipses them all because he comes with one particular mission, and it's to save people from their sins. These other Old Testament great icons of faith, they were deliverers, but of a earthly variety. None of them could save from sin. Only the Messiah could do that. Only Christ could do that. Because the worst enemy to be saved from is ourselves is the sin that's in us and the power sin has over us and the penalty that sin brings. Death and damnation and isolation and eternal punishment from God. So first and foremost, a Savior has been born and we have to know that about Christ to worship Him rightly this Christmas. He's a Savior from sin. Second, He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Anointed One. Even though Caesar Augustus self-titled Exalted One, Exalted King, that was a name given by men, mere men. Whereas this name, Christ, Messiah, is God's name for His appointed King, His forever King, His exalted King. Nobody could hold the office like He did. Listen to the words of prophecy in Psalm 2. Amidst nations in an uproar, peoples devising vain things, kings of the earth like all the Caesars and Alexander the Great and, and uh, all the others that we saw in Daniel from all the different kingdoms, they take their stand and rulers take counsel together. And who do they do it against? They do it against the Lord and against His Messiah. Do they stand a chance? Can they do anything to stop his will? They say, let us tear his fetters apart, cast away his cords. God's response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, you have your kings, I have mine, singular. I've installed him upon Zion, my holy mountain. And here's his anointing. I have said to him, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to rule and you're going to reign. I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. And you will break any of those who rebel with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. What's the takeaway? All kings of the earth show discernment. Take warning, judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Do homage to the sun. Kiss the sun. That's the picture of what an inferior bowing before a superior. Kissing the rod. Showing that I've got nothing. You've got everything. I have no power. You have all power. Do homage to that sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Here's the good news. Here's the news of salvation. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's called the Savior from sin, and He's also the Messiah who says, come, take refuge in me. But you've got to bow before me. Which brings us to the third title of His name, the Lord. A title that's common in the Bible for honor, reverence, respect to someone who has power over you. But Jesus is Lord is extraordinary authority. Unlike any prior or ever to come, when was he given this authority? Well, you can go back to Daniel chapter 7 from eternity past 
When the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days, he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. How's that for being the Lord of Lords? Eternal King for all time, being given dominion over every place, every person, every possibility of existence. He is Lord. The great confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16 is a confession that was from heaven down to earth, something that we could never come up with on our own. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter responds in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father who's in heaven. He's Lord of all. You know, there's a misconception sometimes we go around telling people you need to make Jesus Lord of your life by what you say about him. You don't make him Lord of anything. He already is. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. What do we do when we call people to repentance, to bow the knee? We're calling you to confess him as your Lord. What's that word confess? Say the thing about him that's already true about him. Say what already is the great reality of creation and for all time, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And you don't make him that. He is that. It's just a matter of whether you're going to recognize him as such. Recognize yourself as what? The slave, the servant, who deserves nothing but has been given everything. That's what salvation is. That's why Jesus starts the great Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, because salvation comes to the person who recognizes, I've got nothing to give this king. I've got nothing, nothing to give him. He has everything to give me. The most important thing of all is salvation, forgiveness of my sin. Because he's the Savior, he's the Christ, and he's the Lord. Our confession just admits that we're his slave to do whatever he commands as long as he commands it. And when you understand what you've been saved from and out of, you do it with joy. You respond accordingly. How good he has been to me to save me from the darkness and despair that I was in. My ordinary life, my ordinary circumstances. And I'm saved by the most extraordinary Savior, Christ, and Lord there possibly could be. There's no one like Him. Where do you find Him? Verse 12 tells you, you find Him in a place you wouldn't expect. He tells these shepherds, look, you're not going to go into Jerusalem. He's not going to be in the temple. He's not going to have all the religious leaders around Him. You're going to find Him in, in a manger wrapped in cloths. Why? Because He's a humble king. If he wasn't a humble king, we'd have no way to approach him, would we? He dwells in unapproachable light. His holiness is too much for us to look upon. We couldn't stand in his presence and survive. So the message for us is the message for them is don't let his ordinary surroundings blind you to the extraordinary brilliance of his life. That's what this month is about. It's about looking to Christ amidst all the things around us that um, it's darkness 
And even in our best attempts to bring the light, you know that, that, that light that just actually takes away the true light? Like when you're in a big city and you want to look up to the stars and see some good, some good light and you can't see it? That's what we're around here. Because Jesus Christ is just ordinary to so many. You know, he's a manger scene in somebody's yard. He, he's a sign on a barbecue place, the reason for the season. And if that's all he's been to you this month, you're missing him in the ordinary. Now, I'm not saying seeing him around town and, and pictures or, or, or titles or phrases is a bad thing. Praise God we have the freedom to do that. But in your heart of hearts, he has to be the most extraordinary savior from the heart and what he's done for you. And, and you don't need anything around you to get there. That could all go away tomorrow. Expressions of our faith as believers in the Bible Belt could get banned. And you can get jailed. And that should not change you seeing Christ one bit. Because he comes to the heart to change us. And he's in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we love him from the heart. When he's your Savior. When he's your Christ and he's your Lord. So my question for you today, has Christ gone from ordinary to extraordinary in your life? Do you see him for who he really is? Do you see you're the one with nothing to offer this king except your need for him to save you? So if by faith you can see the glory of Jesus right now and talk about a contrast of ordinary to extraordinary in the words of a ordinary preacher. You know, I get blown away by that. Here I am with the most extraordinary message of the gospel in very ordinary packaging. I wouldn't match today if not for my wife. I ate great grains for breakfast. I needed some coffee in between to stand up here and preach the greatest message there ever is about the most glorious person that ever was and will be. But it's also ordinary, and you could get lost on that and miss how extraordinary Christ is. Don't let that happen to you. The good news has come. And it's not just another legend. I was telling you last week how my family and I have attempted for years to finish reading Dickens' Christmas Carol. And last night we finally did. It was wonderful. But I, I saw something at the end of the book I didn't expect to see. On the, You turn the page over and it's got, you know, whatever stuff, copyrights. And then it wrote, uh, this is a work of fiction. Names, character, places are the products of the author's imagination. That story I just explained to you of the birth of Christ is, is no work of fiction. The names and places are absolutely true and you're in it. That's good news. That's very good news. Because it's true, then there is a Savior and you can be saved. Call upon Him this morning if you don't know Him, but now in the eyes of your heart, you're seeing Him in His glory for the first time. And he's calling you to come to him, to be forgiven of your sins, his righteousness for your sinfulness. He took the wrath of God in your place on the cross. His blood was shed to cleanse you to the uttermost. Wash you clean as snow from every sin. Have you trusted in Christ as Savior today? Call upon him and be saved. If you have, then there's 
One last extraordinary thing that's true of this text and it's true of your life. When you know the glory of Jesus Christ and salvation, you have a song to sing. And you see that extraordinary song in 13 and 14. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude, a myriad, thousands upon thousands of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's safe to say that this was the largest choir that ever has been on earth when we talk about a multitude. So that alone is something amazing to picture coming through the night in the kind of glory of God, rocking these shepherds' worlds just in what they're seeing. But then imagine what they're hearing. These angels have angelic, perfect voices. And they've been practicing. Well, it's not a practice. They've been praising since the dawn of time. But see, here's the great thing about this extraordinary message and this extraordinary song. They've never sung this one before. You know, because what have they seen for thousands of years with man? They've seen failure. They've seen falling short of the glory of God. They've never been able to come to earth before and say this because God has never come to earth before to save. And they, as Peter says, these angels have been longing to look in to the glory of the gospel and now it's finally starting to make sense to them. What's making sense? That God can finally be at peace with His creation because of the salvation in His Son. If you have been justified by faith, what do you have with God? Peace. You've been reconciled to Him. What, what are they singing about? They're singing about the great reconciliation that's only possible in the gospel. And because of that, they're giving God the highest praise they've ever given Him. This is something new for them to rejoice in. This is a song that's never been written and never been sung, so maybe all of them showed up to sing it. They didn't want to be left out. It's my sanctified imagination. <laughs> but they are saying glory to God in the highest. Highest means highest. This is unlike anything ever, and it's because God has made a way to be saved. So there could be actual peace between God and man for the first time. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. And when you know that's true, you can sing. Whatever's going on in your life right now. If you know you've been reconciled to God through His Son, you can sing. And it's not because you're ignoring your problems and pains of life in a fallen world. As far as the curse is found, we have reasons not to sing. We have so many things that could take away our joy, rob us of peace, except this one. That if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Him. And when you know you've been given the love of God, your Father, here's what you know. The final words of this amazing song He's pleased with you, believer. He's pleased with you. You know on a human level, there's nothing greater for a child than to know that they are what? They are pleasing to their parents. That they're proud of them. They love them. They would do anything for them even when they don't perform the way they should. For a child to hear from a parent with you, I am well pleased and believer in Christ, child of God. This is what's being sung over you because you're at peace with God through Jesus' Son. 
There's no sweeter song to be sung. That's what fills our hearts with praise that erupts from the inside. God, the Holy One, Jesus, the Savior, gave His life for me. And He's pleased with me. Exactly the way I am this very moment. So when that's true, you can sing. True believers are children who know that their father is happy with them. Dickens wrote, it's good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. From the time of creation when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, it was all about praise to God. From the time of the incarnation when the angels sang glory to God in the highest and the shepherds went back, what does it say in verse 20? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard, it was all about praise to God. From the time after the resurrection when the first disciples were blessed by Christ and he ascended back to heaven, what did they do? They returned to Jerusalem, worshiping and praising God with great joy, continually in the temple praising him. So track the course of history for the true child of God, the true believer in Christ, the one that knows God's pleased with them. Is anything different for you today? From creation to the incarnation to the resurrection and the ascension, how's it any different for any of us? What are we here to do this morning? Give praise to God for salvation. Why? Because Christ is our life. Christ is our joy. Christ is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for salvation in Him. There's nothing that compares right now. There's no event later today. There's no gift tomorrow morning. There's no celebration this week that can compare to being at peace with you through your Son and you being pleased with us. Thank you for your extraordinary message of good news that takes the ordinary in our lives and turns the lights on so that we can see salvation is from you, the glory of God and the face of Christ. It's him we praise this morning. All praise and honor and glory due to him. Amen.